Well, let's turn to Revelation, the book of Revelation, and we're beginning chapter 3 tonight. I said to you this morning, if you were with us, that I will do a bit of an introductory message this morning, but we will introduce this letter, which is, of course, sent to this next church in the seven in Asia Minor, the church in Sardis. Follow along as I read, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis. Each uh, letter, as we have studied it, we have given it a particular characteristic that appears in the text, that which they're being challenged with or commended by, as two of the churches are. And so tonight I will call this God's people in Sardis, the church of the walking dead. Sardis, what an interesting place. And in fact, um, its geographical characteristics and, and some of its history seemed to match the problem that was occurring spiritually in this church. Just speaking spiritually for a moment before we talk a little bit about its history, notice in the text that you have here Jesus Christ, and He says to them, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And He tells them to wake up. As we'll study next time, we'll get into the specifics and sort of work our way into the details of how this is laid out here. But you notice just in general that this is a church that had a reputation, probably not just in the community, but a reputation according to their own opinion. They had some press of who they were in the community of Sardis, but they also were reading that press and therefore had their own perspective of the church. Their perspective was that they had a reputation for being a ministry that's alive, a ministry that's active, a ministry that is according to its profession. That was their reputation. The construction here centered around this translation, you have a name that you are alive, indicates that that was the, that was the going reputation of the people and probably, as I said, the reputation of the leaders of this church filtering down then into the congregation. But, he says, whatever your reputation in the community or your own opinion of yourselves, it's quite the opposite. You are dead. 
It's also noteworthy here that he is not indicating when he says that they are dead that the church is already completely devoid of its future influence should they repent. You notice he calls them to repent. And he also says there are some, a few people, verse 4 in Sardis, who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So much like Thyatira and some of the others, there is a commendable aspect, at least to some degree, the hope that they might repent. And as is true in some of the other contexts, here you have some in the church who aren't dead. Some in the church whose service is righteous. Some in the church whose hearts are right. Some in the church who haven't soiled their garments, so the text says. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That is to say, in the same way the New Testament says, I want you to have a lifestyle and a walk with Christ that is worthy of His name or worthy of the calling with which you've been called, there are some in Sardis who who would not be considered dead, phonies, They are not those who believe that they're one thing and then Jesus says you're another. They're not deceived about who they are. In the midst of a church that is largely about to to have its, its life completely snuffed out, there are a few who've held out, but not the rest. The rest are those who have become asleep. We might say they have become complacent. We might say that they have come to the place where they have, as a congregation, become complacent. I know your deeds, he says. You have a name, a reputation that you're alive, but it's different. Doesn't matter what you think of yourself, doesn't matter what the community thinks of you. You're not alive. It may be your reputation on a horizontal level, but a vertical assessment, the vertical scorecard is zero. You're dead. Maybe not completely in terms of every single individual in the congregation, for there are a few people that are not, but on the whole, you need to wake up. He says that in verse 2, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. If there's a little bit of a remnant there, strengthen that. Like Paul says in Philippians 3, 17, I want, you to, I want you to elevate character qualities that everyone can join together in following and follow that. Imitate that, not this. Find the things that remain and the things that were about to be snuffed out, the things that were just about to be completely without spiritual course, spiritual impact, spiritual influence. Find those things which were about to die, he says, and wake up and strengthen those things. Why? Because I haven't found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. You've fallen aside. It's interesting that the spiritual problem here, if we were to call it complacency, matches a little bit of the, the way the city, even geographically, sort of uh, mapped out in its history. You say, what do you mean? Well, interestingly enough, geographically, this was a city set on a hill, so to speak, This was a city that was on a hill rising above the plains of Hermas. And uh, it was about a 1,500-foot rise to to where the plateau was upon which this city existed. It was a very mountainous area. And ancient Sardis was atop of the plateaus where these steep sides rose up to the city. The back portion of this place 
at, had a high flat connected to the towering mountain Tumolus. And this strategic location made it very difficult to lay siege to it. And, uh, and the south side is where you entered the city, and that was a bit difficult anyway and challenging to navigate even if you were entering the city. The other sides of it were, were essentially steep, cliff-like rock formations that went all the way down to the valley below. And as I said, it was, a, it was quite a steep drop. If you went over the sides, it would be some 1,500 feet before you reached your death. So history tells us. And so other rulers and kingdoms and uh, cities and empires and armies found it very challenging to get to the place where they could overtake Sardis. It was very hard to lay siege to this city. It was impregnable, so to speak. One historian uh, captures the essence of it this way. Being the capital of Lydia, Sardis had a history of frequent wars. Whoever controlled Sardis controlled Lydia. In this role, Sardis was preeminent, so says history, in the eyes of the more Hellenistic cities of Asia to the west as the oriental enemy in whose hands their fate rested. And so most of them engaged Sardis in warfare and lost. It was a great, wealthy, impregnable city over which victory was practically impossible. There was an ongoing rivalry between Asia and Europe um, and uh, Sardis represented Asia, and then the, the Hellenistic colonies, the Greek colonies toward the coast to the west represented Europe. And so Sardis was an enemy of those particular cities. And the historian says, after learning from them, it eventually conquered them and earned the acknowledged status, which they entitled Sardis, the first metropolis of Asia and of Lydia and of Hellenism. And that, of course, appeared on their economics, on their coins. By the middle of the 6th century B.C., it was known and respected to such a degree that no one thought it could ever be overtaken, which, as you know, whenever anyone thinks it is um, invincible, uh, something happens. <laughs> and suddenly you find out how, how uh, completely uh, vulnerable you are, and that's exactly what happened with Sardis. Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, went up against her and was soundly defeated. And uh, uh, sorry, the, Sardis, uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, was soundly defeated when he went out out of Sardis to do war. And when he went back, he regrouped his army and ready for another attack. And he was pursued quickly by the king of Persia, who laid siege against Sardis. And interestingly enough, they left those sheer cliffs, vulnerable, never protecting them, never put any guard on them. And um, interestingly enough, they became complacent about whether or not they could be defeated. And sure enough, in 549 B.C., those rock walls on those other three sides were scaled and they were overtaken. In 195 B.C., uh, Antiochus the Great once again conquered Sardis, by use, utilizing the same method, some, some sure-footed climbers who took those routes that were uh, overconfidently left vulnerable, and suddenly Sardis was overtaken. It seems that in this particular case, the church, spiritually speaking, is an analogy for what happened to this city militarily. They were complacent and vulnerable. And so God sort of puts a geographical exclamation point on what He's going to be telling this church. 
complacency. They had a name that they were on top of things, that they were ready to go, and they became overconfident in it. But as a church, they became complacent. In a very, very difficult culture, it's interesting that the worship in Sardis was, of course, false worship and false gods all over the place, but it it seems, history tells us, that that their main problem was self-sufficiency as it was. They were wealthy, impregnable, and essentially came to love themselves. And so human self-actualization was largely what they loved most, the exaltation of human prowess, the exaltation of self-sufficiency, becoming complacent about vulnerabilities, not believing that they're vulnerable. Invincibility, delusions of grandeur and impregnability. This was their problem. And so Jesus says to them, I know these deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. You're complacent. You've grown dull. This is extremely dangerous and an indictment on this church, which then becomes very, very important for us to think carefully about. Complacency, dullness. Notice that at the beginning of the letter, you have this similar address that appears in all the letters, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? So here you have the messenger bringing the message to the church in Sardis. And then this great title drawn again from the opening chapter of Revelation, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You remember that the seven stars are the messengers to the churches, and the seven spirits of God comes from the reference to Christ in chapter 1. Pulling, of course, from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 10, which speaks about the eyes of the Lord, the comprehensive number being seven, the comprehensive knowledge of His people, a comprehensive understanding of what His people need, a comprehensive understanding of the folly that comes to the human heart when we drift from God. This is the reference to the the knowledge of Christ that He has, which is comprehensive. And, of course, He roams to and fro all over the earth and in and through his churches because he knows them. And that's no different here in chapter 3 with regard to Sardis. I know your deeds. Why? Because this is the comprehensive nature of the eyes of the Lord, the Spirit of God, which roams the earth, convicting of sin, bringing about an understanding of truth, opening hearts, hardening others. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in his omniscience and in his wisdom and in His truth. And so he is addressing the church and says, I know you have a reputation of one thing, but I'm here to tell you, you've grown complacent. Look at Hebrews 6 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 6. I want to sort of introduce this idea of the danger of complacency. The danger of complacency. Hebrews chapter 6, of course, God had just, through the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Spirit, warned the people of God who professed Christ here. He'd warned them of this danger of having their hearing become dull. Back in chapter 5, verse 11, concerning Melchizedek as this high priest and the one who points to the ultimate high priest, Christ, Concerning him, we have much to say, verse 11. It's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing, chapter 5, verse 11. And then you see in chapter 6 another reference to this problem. 
God is not unjust, verse 10, chapter 6, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." Now, the writer of Hebrews, as always in the warning sections of Hebrews, is concerned that true believers persevere and look at the commands of God and stay faithful and diligent, and that the commands of God become the means by which a person's mind is trained on Christ, focused on Christ, and even becomes more discerning about evil and separating good from evil, chapter 5, verse 14. But he's also warning those who who have the seeds of unbelief in their heart, that they could move toward apostasy and prove that they weren't a part of Christ at all. And they, through uh, sluggishness and a lack of diligence, lose their full assurance of hope and do not remain until the end. And so they don't inherit the promises. This is a call to believers to stay on it, to persevere, don't become sluggish, and it is a warning to those who have unbelief in their heart that you could prove that you were never part of God's kingdom at all and you will not inherit the promise. There is this warning about complacency, sluggishness. There is this warning about your spiritual ears becoming dull of hearing, stopped up, clogged up. This is a problem. And there are particular seasons in the life of a church where this is more of a problem than in other seasons. Brand new churches... Newly birthed churches where first-generation believers exist, especially those who come under harsh persecution, having been birthed in, a, in the midst of much opposition, such as Philippi and Thessalonica, etc. Those kinds of churches seem to ride for a generation or more on the fervency that comes from having come out of unbelief, and they're running as fast and hard as they can away from those things of the old life, and they become prayer warriors, and they become diligent in the things of God, and they become discerning, and they're, they're voracious in their appetite, they're hungry, and their minds start to tune into the truth, and the Spirit of God seems to pour His grace out upon their understanding of truth and Scripture and its application. We call that the first generation fervency in the life of a church. Somebody asked me the other day, you know, You've been there nearly 17 years. What, what's it like at Grace Emmanuel? You know, you feel like you're, you're, you're still remaining fervent. And I used to hear my old mentor, John MacArthur, say all the time that, that you know, through what will be his Jubilee celebration here up and coming in 2019, 50 years in the same pulpit, in the same ministry, he has said he's shepherded many congregations, several congregations, and there are seasons where you can kind of see where the life of the church was. And I remember when I went to that church for the first time in 1986, and it wasn't long after that, that there was a series done called The Anatomy of the Church. And in that series, The Anatomy of the Church, I, I remember in his intro comments, he would say, look, I, I want to tell you about the church because there are so many of you here who weren't here in the beginning. And you've come in to all of the fruitfulness that is born from the labor of those who've come before you, and you won't, you won't have the scars and 
and the difficulty and the challenge, and you won't have the well-worn hands that dug the trenches and poured the concrete and laid the foundation. You come in and the edifice is already there, and there's resource, and, and as we say proverbially, bells and whistles, and you're enjoying Disneyland in ministry. You're the second and third generation of those who come and enjoy the fruit of ministry. And I was thinking about that when I was asked the question, where do you think we are? And and I suppose we are, as Dr. Kent Hughes said, in the springtime of ministry. We, we've poured some foundation over the last 15 or so plus years, and, and uh, we laid a foundation on top of what was already there in all of the finest and strongest of elements that were there when I arrived. And then we poured that on top of that and refined our understanding of doctrine. We came to the place where we began to develop leadership that was unified around the truth, and, and then we equipped the saints, and then that core group of people started to come and galvanize and gel, and then that became the, the, those that could be imitated, the mature, then who would then disciple the less mature, and on down the road we went, and long about the 10th year here, and on into the years between 10 and 15, we we began to see the fruit of that bearing itself out in the next generation coming up. But I suspect that somewhere around a generation, 15 years or so, 20 years, there's a danger. There's a danger of all that fruit being enjoyed and, and not enough of the seniors and the previous ones who poured the foundation hanging around anymore having gone home to be with the Lord, many of them, enjoying their eternal rest while we go on with the ministry. But, but unless you, you reach to do something in ministry and see the scars from having laid some of that foundation, if you just reach out and you take the resources of the church, it could be that it isn't very long that you fall into the same trap that perhaps Sardis fell into, self-sufficiency, complacency, relaxing, a lack of fervency, a reputation that we're moving and going as a ministry. But Jesus looks at us and says, you need to wake up. Thankfully, I believe that we're not there yet, but this letter to the churches could serve as a warning, and this introduction tonight hopefully will sort of call us to that wake up. Complacency, how does it happen? How does it happen that we become complacent, dull of hearing, as the writer of Hebrews said? How does it happen that you, you read your own press and you have the opinion that you're alive, but Jesus says you're really dead? Well, I started to think about this as I studied the church at Sardis, and, and of course I will unfold the letter more specifically next time, but it is interesting to me that he says here, to this church that there are some, a few people, it's very interesting in helping us understand what the issue was, we have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. So they have a reputation in the community and to themselves that they're alive, but they're actually dead, but there are some who haven't soiled their garments. The implication seems to be that they haven't gone into the community and become like the community. They haven't gone into the community and suffered the the lack of distinction or, or the, the likability of the world as opposed to standing separate from the world. There are a few who have stood against this soiling of their spiritual life 
by, the, by living in the place in which they exist, they're still a light, but the rest, Jesus says, you're dead. I know your deeds. They're not completed in the sight of my God. You received from us and heard from us, verse 3, what you should have received and should have heard, but you're not keeping it. You're not holding on to the doctrine. You're not holding on to faithful diligence. You're not keeping what you received from us and heard from us. You have not woken up. You're asleep. And being asleep, if you're not careful, if you're not repentant, I'm going to come like a thief. You're not going to know it. You're going to go along believing that your church is, is worthy of note and is distinctly for Jesus. A Jesus assessment of it is you're dead. You're all walking around, you're all running around, you're all doing a lot of things, but there's no more actual spiritual influence because you left what you've received and heard and you did not keep it and you've soiled your garments, just to use the opposite of verse 4. Your deeds aren't completed, though you think they are, because you're not presenting them in the sight of my God. They're not completed in the sight of my God. It's not God's evaluation you're interested in. It's your own evaluation you're interested in. And so tonight I just wanted to talk about some of the pathology to complacency. And then it will make sense when we jump into the, the letter more extensively next, next time. I jotted down nine steps to complacency or even signs of complacency in a church. I jotted down nine of them. And there are probably more, maybe some of these could be separated out. But let me just mention to you some of these things that I believe were the sin in Sardis, for which Jesus had to say, wake up and strengthen the things that, were, that remain. The first step or sign of complacency is theological sophistication. Theological sophistication. So what do you mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 8.1 says that knowledge, knowledge puffs up or knowledge makes conceited. Knowledge makes conceited. So here's how the anatomy of it goes. Here's how it typically goes. We are a church that's secure in our doctrine. We've spent a lot of time laying down sound doctrine, which we should. Ephesians 4 says that we equip the saints for the work in the ministry until we all attain to a unity of the faith, a unity of that body of truth. And so we've been doing that, and we continue to do that. In the Word of God, we teach sound doctrine, and so that we can all become unified in that doctrine, and therefore we are growing and being equipped and coming to the place where we look like Christ and we're maturing like Christ as a congregation. The result, of course, is that Ephesians 4.14 says, we are no longer tossed around by error. We're not easily duped. This is good. This is right. We're secure in those things. And according to Hebrews 5.14, in the early days of learning sound doctrine, we are those who by practice learn how to discern truth from error. So we recognize error. And that is good. But here's the problem. You can sometimes become then theologically sophisticated that is to say, you know that you have secure doctrine, you do recognize error, and you use it to protect the church, the, the truth, but because we are fleshly, there is the temptation to say, we are right, therefore we're more spiritual. 
Since our doctrine is sound and clear and from Scripture, therefore we're more spiritual. It happened to Corinth, by the way, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says, Paul, Paul warns them and says, who regards you as superior? I mean, who regards you as superior? Is there somebody in Corinth saying that you're superior to the apostolic ministry and gospel given to the church? If that's the case, have you not remembered something? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it from God as a grace, why do you boast as if you had not received it? This is a step toward complacency. This is a sign of complacency in a church. When you become theologically sophisticated in that you say, we have secure doctrine, we recognize error because of that great teaching, but because we are right, therefore we're more spiritual. You may indeed be more spiritual, but if you're more spiritual, it will not result in boasting. Sometimes people latch on to right doctrines and systematic theology, and then <laughs> suddenly we find that they want to debate other people. And debates are hard things because from two angles. Number one, you have to be prepared for a debate so that you're clear. That's really the only reason for a debate is to be clear about the issues biblically so that it's clear to the people who are hearing it. The other danger to a debate is that you might win. And if you win... The temptation there is to believe that you're, you're superior. You're superior. You won because of your prowess. You won because of your articulateness. You won because of your savvy. It wasn't really anymore about the sheep. It's about believing that you're superior and that you didn't receive these things. And so you start boasting as if you had not received them. We're right. Therefore, we are spiritually superior. That danger is there. I feel that danger already in our congregation. Someone comes from a ministry that is less faithful to teach the Word of God to its people. Someone comes from a place where they were starving and they can be fed here and, and they come in and, and, you know, they're often just, just humbled that they get to feed on God's Word in a way they never had. And then they come across people who've been here a long time and, oh, yeah, yeah, those people, that place where, oh, you know. And we begin to speak not with pity, compassion, and, and prayerfulness, and asking God to teach us so that we don't become proud and puffed up. We begin to imagine that we didn't receive these things. We just came up with them. They just originated right here. This, by the way, beloved, is part of Sardis' problem. And they loved the name that they were alive but they're not alive. Why? Because there was too much theological sophistication over a period of time. The backside of this is to say the opposite. They are wrong, therefore they're inferior. They're wrong, therefore they're personally inferior to me. It's very dangerous in a church to condescend to people. You know, when the Apostle Paul warned the the Gentiles, when he was speaking to the church at Rome, there were Jew and Gentile there, and in Romans 11, verse 20, he says to the Gentiles, hey, listen, yes, you have been grafted in. The wild branch has been grafted into the stock of Abrahamic blessing. Yes, you've been grafted in, but don't you become arrogant toward the original branches who many were cut off because they were in unbelief, and they're no longer, they're no longer a part of uh, the, the promise of God because they never ultimately were believers in the promise of God. But you, 
You've been grafted in as a wild olive branch as Gentiles. So the blessing, the Abrahamic stock of blessing rushes to the Gentile nations, but when you come in, don't you become arrogant. He says, quite right, they, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you, he says, you stand by your faith. Don't be conceited, but fear. I love that instruction. Don't be conceited, but fear. He contrasts conceit and pride with fear of God. Look, if I've been given salvation, if I've been grafted in, then when I find somebody who doesn't know the truth, there should be pity and compassion and love and outreach. There should never be personal contempt or as if I can condescend to someone because I didn't receive this. I came up with it on my own. Listen, if we understand the doctrine that we've learned, the theology that we embrace, it produces humility and only humility. To be proud about doctrine is to not understand doctrine and its implications, even if you could academically cross your T's and dot your I's. So we are secure in our doctrine, we recognize error, but sometimes we're tempted to say we're right and therefore we're more spiritual personally, and they're wrong, therefore they are inferior, and that leads ultimately to, I believe, what could have been Sardis' ultimate problem. Other people won't listen to us, therefore they're not worthy of Christ. You won't listen to us, you're not worthy of Christ. Here's a second sign of complacency, making some sins, as Jerry Bridges calls them, respectable. Making particular sins respectable, or we might say being soft in our repentance. In other words, churches can get to the place where people are actually saying, I'm too, too mature to be this weak. If I have weaknesses, I'm not going to let anybody know about it. No one can come to me and ask, ask a question about my spiritual life. Whatever sins are happening in my life, they're not worthy of mention. We, we sort of make some of these things respectable. I love Jerry Bridges' little book because if you just read through the, the table of contents, you know it gets pretty serious. He, he lists sins that we sort of make acceptable in the church. This leads to complacency in the church. All sin is an offense to God, but sometimes, as his book indicates, we, we say things like anxiety and frustration are not really sins. I wasn't angry. I was frustrated, but I wasn't angry because anger is a sin. Frustration is not. Well, I, I, I wasn't worrying. I was a little bit anxious, but I wasn't worrying. Or discontentment. I have a right to be discontent, or I'm not discontent, but I have a right to complain unthankfulness, specific versions of pride, selfishness, just general selfishness. I mean, we are a narcissistic, selfish culture, and we've raised a generation that's coming up that's, that's doubly hostile about their, their narcissism and their selfishness, and we are making that into a respectable sin in the church. How about a lack of self-control? There are, there are people who literally have no interest in curbing the passions of their life so long as they don't represent maybe the worst of scandalous kinds of things in their behavior, but they lack self-control with their tongue, they lack self-control with areas of their life, and we wink at it. Impatience, irritability is one of his chapters. Oof, that one's a tough one. Impatience and irritability. Oh, impatience is a sin, but not irritability. Man, when I have had a tough day, I have a right to be irritable. Anger, judgmentalism, envy and jealousy, that's becoming a respectable sin in the church. 
Unwholesome speech, oh, that's, it's almost a virtue to retaliate with unwholesome speech. It's in our movies, it's in our media, and it floods its way into our ministries. We point fingers, we say harsh things, we don't repent of them, we're making things respectable. We are becoming dull, complacent, dead. Even as a chapter in there on worldliness, I, I like that because, frankly, this is no doubt part of Sardis' problem, as we'll see next time. They were a church that had soiled their garments in worldliness. Acts 24, 16, Paul says that he indicates that no sin is small, and he says, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both God and before men. I always strive to maintain a blameless conscience. That's right. And Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, Timothy, I'm entrusting this command to you, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight of faith. What did he mean? Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Sounds like a warning, just like Sardis was given. As a church, you're not keeping a clear conscience. As a church, you're, you're becoming soft in your repentance. You're making some sins acceptable and respectable. Here's a third. Confrontation without restoration. Confrontation without restoration. In a church, a, a church that's well taught can, can become a church that finds other people's problems um, and points them out readily because after all, we're trying to help other people. But the motive is not, as Galatians 6, 1 says, restoration. The motive is condescension. The motive is superiority. The motive is retaliation. The motive is often exposure. I'm not going to let love throw a cloak over sin and its effects. I'm not going to keep the circle small. I'm going to gossip about it and blow this thing out. Why? Because I want to rejoice in their downfall. And so I'm confronting them. Boy, I'm so concerned about the spiritual life of so-and-so. Hmm. No, you're not. You mentioned it in your prayer group because you, you want to expose the weakness and you want to glory in it. In fact, because you have, have seen some success in your spiritual life in a given area and last week you heard that someone else uh, was having weakness in there, you secretly gloated in your heart. Beloved, this is to become complacent. It is to become one who will confront others but won't actually think about restoration. Galatians 6.1 says, you who are spirit-filled, you who are spiritual, you who are walking in the spirit, you restore those who have been caught in a trespass. And you do it with a spirit of gentleness, taking heed to yourselves, lest you be tempted. I believe that the church that has a reputation that is alive but is about to die is a church that has become complacent. One of the main characteristics is we're not any longer interested in actually restoring people to a walk with Christ that's faithful. We just like to take the truth and use it as a bludgeon. It's sad when you see a church like that. 
Here's a fourth. A sign of complacency is when we major on externals. We major on externals. This is the sin of Phariseeism. Jesus will mention this scathingly, I might add, in Matthew chapter 23. You can jot down Matthew 23 and turn there if you would. These are, of course, strong words from Jesus to the Pharisees. They'd finally rejected His authority, and He'd finally hidden the truth from them by speaking to them in veiled sayings. And He has a moment here where He points His finger at them and gives them several... uh, He calls down several curses upon their externalism. But it's interesting that in this list, He includes in verse 23 this calling down of a curse upon them because they were hypocrites in this way. They tithe mint and dill and cumin. In other words, they keep the the particulars of the externals of the law. That is to say, they had a name that they were spiritual. They had a name that they were alive. They had a reputation for, for... in public being spiritual men. Why? Because they tithed the mint and the dill and the cumin. And he says, but you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law. You conveniently skirted around the things that deal with the heart. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now that's the first thing that goes in a church when it becomes complacent is it begins to major on externals. Why? Because externals is an easier way to appear as though you're spiritual. This is why you can have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. This is classic Phariseeism. Sometimes people wonder why the Pharisees would include all kinds of new regulations over the top of the law, which was already unbearable. Listen, the reason they wrote over 600 little additions to the law was so that those little additions were were ways that they could more easily appear to be spiritual without actually having to deal with the law of God. So you had the law of God, which says thou shalt not, or even in case law, uh, implicated them because they weren't always faithful to that, but so they just put a cover over the top of it with all their regular. Here's our list of regulations, but all this stuff was just an easier way to appear spiritual. Oh, we tithe, mint, and cumin, and dill. Oh, the faithfulness and the justice and mercy side of it? Well, there are reasons why you don't see perhaps that blatantly in our life. There's a reason why you don't necessarily see mercy in our life all the time. You know, you're supposed to take care of your parents and give money uh, to, to taking care of your parents, but oh, we gave it to the temple. We gave our money to the temple as an act of worship. Well, that just, first of all, it was a lie. They didn't actually give it all. They were a bit like Ananias and Sapphira, promising it to God, but taking back what they wanted for their greedy selves. But ultimately, there was pretense even in them saying, oh yeah, we're giving it to worship. No, you're not. You have a name that you're alive because you do these external things and yet deep down you're dead because you actually don't do them for God and you don't even do them completely. You major on externals. And Jesus says to them, woe to you for doing that for you do those external things but you've neglected the things that are harder to do like being just with people and being merciful to others and faithfulness to God. These other things, these externals, you should have done. You should give your tithes. He says to them, speaking of Old Testament taxation, you should give for the theocracy. You should give to Israel in the operation of the temple service. You should do that. But you should have also 
done those things without neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're majoring on externals. Beloved, a church that becomes complacent is a church that will be tempted to keep up appearances. We have our services, we have our ministries, we have our singers, we have our instruments, we have our uh, greetings, our greeting team, we have our people who, who uh, you know, take care of behind the scenes things, and we have the people that keep the events going, and, and we have our brochures and our cool looking website. We have all that. And it really looks wonderful. In fact, haven't you found it funny when you go to websites, you see pictures of people, and you say, I wonder if those are the actual people in the church. You ever wondered that? I mean, we deliberately put our people in there because most of us were tired of going to websites, and when churches get visited, those people aren't there. In fact, they're actors. They're clip art people. And you choose them for your website because you want a name that you're alive. <laughs> we're vibrant we got ministry going on here. Oh, there's young and old, every ethnic group. All right, you go there, and it's, it's six people with silver hair. There's no one of those other people there. None of them. What are we doing? We major on externals. You know, it doesn't matter what your website looks like. It only matters when people come through the door if there's the aroma of life to life and Christ-likeness and forgiveness and humility and Love like Christ. Number five, a love of earthly comforts. A love of earthly comforts. You say, what do you mean? Well, we don't, we don't in a culture, like to go without. We don't like to go without relief and creature comforts. And given those things to richly to be enjoyed in the common graces of God, we can be tempted to become lovers of those things and make idols out of earthly comforts. And, and we have done that even as an evangelical culture. We start fighting a culture war because we're so tired of our comforts being taken away. In a free society where we had religious freedom to a large degree uh, untouched, and suddenly those things get encroached upon, and we start to fear, and so then you have a choice to make. And we're starting to see churches capitulate and bow the knee because they want the comfort of the culture's good opinion. That's what they want. What's happened? Complacency. How can it be that at the very same time we're denying Scripture by accepting cultural moral norms and at the same, that, that's a dead church, a complacent church, and at the same time we have a name, we're buying up all kinds of campuses and putting our name on them. We're the fastest growing dead church in America. How do we know it's dead? You're capitulating to the culture. You love earthly comfort. You just don't want to go against the tide. And so your leaders capitulate, and that trickles down into the church. And pretty soon, uh, it isn't too long, five, six, seven, eight years before the people in the church start using the world's language about those moral issues rather than the Bible's language. If somebody who did real Bible exposition walked into some of those places where they named the name of Christ and preached from the pulpit a message out of Romans 1, the whole place would blow up. They have a name that they're alive, but complacency has set in because they love the comfort of the world's good opinion. And Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. 
All who live godly in this age will suffer persecution. That leads to number six. We have a fear of persecution. This was Sardis' problem. Revelation 3, verse 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. There it is. This church has become ashamed of Christ. It's the overcomer who isn't ashamed of Christ, who, whom Christ confesses before his Father, Luke's gospel says. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. So now we get a little insight into Sardis' problem. They had a fear of being persecuted. They became complacent because not only did they love the good opinion of the world, they certainly were not about to pay the price for standing for Christ. They had a name that they were alive. Oh, we're doing ministry. Oh, we're spiritual. We got it going on. But they're dead. Ultimately then, number seven, they loved worldliness. They loved worldliness. That's the concept in verse four. They have a few people there who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. There's the idea that their conscience is cleansed from dead works and their outward life is starting to match the purity of their inward life. They haven't soiled their garments. It was, of course, a self-sufficient culture. It was a love of wealth and a love of self-actualization and the church had become dull of hearing the spiritual dynamics and had begun to love this kind of living comfortably within the community of Sardis. Self-sufficiency had set in, a love of worldly ideology, a love of worldly philosophy, even perhaps a lowbrow lifestyle in the love of pleasure. A complacent church is a church that gravitates toward the things that the world loves. And this was, of course, true of Israel of old, and the concept was warned of over and over again. Just was thinking of Ezekiel 33, verse 31. They come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them, for they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. That's what happened to Sardis. The cravings in their life were matching the cravings of the culture, and they began to fulfill them with the culture. They even became a part of their speech, like it did of Israel of old. It talked like the culture. And I was so you know, sad, saddened by the tragedy of the contextualization argument of 15 or so years ago. The upcoming young people were being taught that contextualization meant you go immerse yourself in the culture so that you could gain access to them and they would accept you enough to hear your gospel message. You know what that did? To, to take young people who might be in Christ, many were not, but some who were really in Christ but new in their faith and immerse them in the culture without the self-discipline to, to take the message to the culture without being stained by the world. All you did was send young people into the lusts of the flesh and they had no ability to, to stand against all that came at them. It's no wonder that, that the hyper-grace movement came along and was popular because there were a bunch of young people in the church looking for a way to salve their conscience. Why? Because they'd immersed themselves in the culture and now they had all kinds of worldliness going on and they couldn't control it. Sensual habits, worldly habits 
carousing habits, all the things the Bible warns against, but they had immersed themselves in it at the hands of some of these leaders who said, that's how you evangelize, and they went into it, immersed themselves in it, and became controlled and dominated by it. And then their conscience was burdened, having become you know, genuine Christians, and they loved Christ, but their conscience was burdened because of the, the immersion in the world, and now the sin patterns in their life. And the hyper-grace movement comes along and says, you don't have to worry about any of that. Don't worry about obedience to Christ. You're free. Oh, thank you. So I'm not actually guilty. No wonder. Same was true of Sardis. There were only a few who hadn't loved earthly pleasures, whose speech hadn't become cultural speech, whose ideology and philosophy of life hadn't become cultural And of Israel, God had warned. They went after their own gain. This was, of course, Sardis' problem. They went after the community for gain, earthly gain. They stored up treasures on the earth rather than in heaven. Two more very quickly. One was the idolatry of reputation. The idolatry of reputation. They they believed their own press. They loved the idea that they were not only well liked by the world, but by the world, but they they loved their own view of themselves. They they began to bow down to the idol of their own reputation. And Romans twelve verse three warns against that. I want you to think so as to have sound judgment, and do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. No, you're to think so as to have sound judgment. What does that mean? It means think about yourself rightly. You're to be a dead sacrifice, a, a, a living sacrifice to Christ, dying to self and giving your life to Him in worship. And you're not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if any of you thinks more highly of himself than he ought to think, then he ought to think so as to have sound judgment. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and following, what, what do you think? Look, it is, it is God who destroys the reasoning of the wise, and so you better not think you're wise. Just consider yourself morally bankrupt. Consider yourself a spiritual moron, and you will have begun the path toward real wisdom, Paul says. Complacency happens when, when we start to read our own press and think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It can happen personally, it can happen corporately. It can happen as an individual for your gifts and talents and skills and all the things that God gives you to do and all that it seems that He's accomplishing through you. And it can also happen corporately as a church when we sort of are popularized or somebody says, oh, we really are blessed by your ministry. And, you know, I I hear all the time uh, by those who are enjoying the fruit of what many of you are doing in your in your discipleship and those kind of things. And I hear outside of our church how the conferences that we do, women's conference, the, the Ecclesia conference, the Courageous Churchman conference, and other things that we do to, to teach and train one another, we put online. I hear all the time that those things are blessing people. I love that. It's wonderful. But I want to check my heart. And your heart is tested in those things. Yesterday, I got a phone call out of the blue from someone that, that came and heard me speak at a camp in 2003, and he just got my number from a dear friend of mine whose church he had visited, and he called me out of the blue yesterday and just said, I just want to tell you what a wonderful ministry that particular week in my life was, and I want you to tell you what's happened since then over those last several years, more than a decade, and what God's done. And I thought, wow, that's just... 
absolutely wonderful. And it doesn't really matter how he expressed it. He was saying thank you, and that's a wonderful thing to do. But I have to check my heart before God because it is ultimately irrelevant how God uses us or to what degree He uses us. And when someone thanks us, it should never be that we imagine that we're indispensable to such things. A church that stops checking its heart is a church that's beginning to bow down to its own view of itself, reading its own press and glorying in it. Jesus warned in John chapter 5, you seek glory from each other. If you seek glory from each other, you're not going to be seeking glory from God. You can't serve both. (laughs) And lastly, a sign of complacency in a church is grumbling. Grumbling. This might fit into the respectable sin category of ingratitude or unthankfulness, but complaining and grumbling. I believe that Sardis probably to one degree or another while reading their own press and imagining that they were a church that was alive, Jesus says you're dead. And the reason is because their deeds in the sight of God were not completed. That is to say, they didn't come to the full place of gratitude for all that God had given them and all that He'd done in saving them. I'll tell you this, I get nervous about this in a church. I get nervous about this in my own Christian life. A pattern of grumbling Philippians 2.14 says we're to do all things without disputing, without grumbling or disputing. And we've talked about that before. It's essentially in the context more about throwing up disputes about the work that God's doing in our life, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that is to say reverence and faith, humility and faith, for it's God who's at work in you and He's willing and working for His good pleasure. So we're to do all things without disputing that, without grumbling against that. It's really about grumbling against God. I don't like what you're doing in my life, God. I don't like what you're doing to our church, God. I don't like what you're doing in this community or in this nation, God. I don't like it. I don't like how we're being led. I don't like the circumstances and providences that you're ordaining. I don't like it. I want a different family. I want a different life. I want a different existence health-wise. I want a different bank account. I want a different job. I want a different uh, place to go to church where we're not so persecuted or whatever the grumbling might be based upon. Israel was chided for their grumbling. They grumbled a lot. It's interesting, a phrase keeps appearing over and over in the Old Testament in Exodus and in Numbers. Exodus 15, 24, the people grumbled at Moses. Exodus 16, 2, the whole congregation grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. In Numbers 14, 2, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said in their grumbling what they said. Number 1641, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. By the time you get to Joshua, chapter 9, verse 18, the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. So now we're not just grumbling against one prophet and the priest. We're grumbling as a whole congregation against all the leaders. What did it mean to grumble? Well, Psalm 106, verse 25 tells us. They grumbled in their tents, Israel did. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. There it is. You don't listen to His word, 
you don't humble yourself under His Word. Listen, beloved, you may not grumble with your lips, but you can grumble with your will. You may not complain with your words, but you can complain with your actions. We as a church could become dead, dull of hearing, complacent because we have looked at our circumstances and we have become casual about the wonderful things that God's given us to do. We begin to read our own press and we become to think so much about it that that we see when God does bring some difficulty that we feel He's unjust. He's gracious, He's gracious, He's gracious. We're, we're flourishing, we're flourishing. There's great fruitfulness. And then all of a sudden He brings what will grow our faith and we suddenly think He's been unfair. It's a sign of complacency, deadness. It's a sign that we've lost our ministry. We've lost our life. We... We are near being snuffed out as Sardis was. So there it is. Where are we as a church, a congregation? Where are we as individuals? Are there seeds of complacency in our hearts and in our life? Have we read our own press and thought more of ourselves than we ought to think? Have we imagined that We're spiritually alive, but we become theologically sophisticated and puffed up with our knowledge. Or we've begun this terrible habit of minimizing repentance and sin, and we've tolerated certain weaknesses in our life and called them respectable. Have we begun the process of finding sins in others, but we're not really interested in restoring them because we're full of pride and unforgiveness. We're willing to point out people's weakness, but don't don't imagine that we're going to go further than that. Or how about just majoring on the minors, the easy things, the externals, and hoping that that will make us look spiritual. It's easier to obey those externals and look spiritual rather than do the hard heart work that needs to be done. Have we bowed down to earthly comforts and likability? Have we feared persecution to the point where we're willing to capitulate and compromise? Have we loved the culture and its pleasures so that we do what our cravings want and what we begin to speak about is cultural things and we begin to immerse ourselves in the language of the culture and pretty soon can't tell us from the culture at all. Do we love the sense of our own superiority and reputation? Do we serve our reputation rather than what God wants? And has that led then to a lifestyle in the church, either corporately or individually, of those who complain against God, imagining that He's unfair because life isn't going along as we had seen it before? These are all signs of complacency, and I believe this is Sardis' problem, and this is why they're chided. I know that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. And Jesus says, wake up. Take that which remains, which is good, and all that that was about to be snuffed out, all the incompleted deeds in the sight of my God, remember what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. And if you don't wake up, you're not going to see it coming when I come to snuff it out. And we'll talk next time about the great reward of overcoming. It's absolutely rich. 
This serves as a bit of an intro warning to us. 